Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Well, welcome back to the waiting room revolution. We are very excited to have Dr. Mira Agar on our podcast today. She is a palliative care physician, a professor of palliative medicine at the University of Technology, Sydney. I know she's a director of the a major research center called Impact and the chair of Palliative Care Australia. So we're so excited that she's calling us from around the world. So Dr. Mira Agar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'd love to just start with you talking a little bit about how you got your, your start in palliative care. So I, I think it was very early on in my um, hospital-based training. I, I really found that there was a problem with healthcare being limited to the boundaries of those four walls. I saw the people I was caring for, especially older adults, you know, spending all this time outside those hospital walls, but it was only when they came to us that somehow we could offer something uh, to them. And um, I, I knew that they had many problems and they had to go to different parts of the hospital. And that also made no sense to me why they had to somehow silo the things that they needed to bits of this building. And you know, I, I did have um, a family friend who was doing palliative medicine and it was partly out of curiosity of what discipline she was studying that made me interested, but it really did align with my thinking that it would solve some of the problems I saw with the way we had structured um, the system um, for people with more chronic progressive illness. Mira, is it okay if we call you Mira? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. Because <laughs> this is a laid-back podcast series. So have you had a chance to listen to the podcast series? And what did you think? I think it's a really important conversation. I think sometimes we feel um, a lot more afraid about talking about these issues than we really um, need to. And I think what the podcast does is... Um, help people give the language, I think, um, to begin um, important discussions about aspects of our lives that we all actually experience, we actually all want to talk about. But I think somehow as a community, we've lost the language to begin the conversation. I think once mm-hmm. we start, it doesn't seem um, as difficult or, or as overwhelming um, or as avoidable um, or the, the need to avoid it doesn't seem to um, be there. And sometimes I think as palliative um, care clinicians, it's that relief that someone started the conversation and then people just seem to know where to take it after that. And I think, you know, I think that's really important um, aspect of what this podcast is offering, giving people that language, um, that toolkit to just start. Mm-hmm. So um, is it fair to say that in Australia you have some of the same types of problematic trends happening where um, people uh, journey along an illness um, as if it's just plain old chronic and uh, there gets to a point where it feels like the carpet is pulled from underneath them and suddenly they get this label, palliative, and um, are dizzy not knowing what to expect because healthcare providers along the journey have been mostly cheerleading for their patients and not really offering the big picture. 
think it's fair to say that there's a diverse range of experiences, but the one you've described is very common. Um, I think this is an international um, um, aspect of how, as health has um, healthcare has Im improved and the options available have ex accelerated some of these core things in terms of journeying alongside someone and explaining um, the steps along the way of an illness. Um, and the uncertainty, I think it's not necessarily mm -hmm. that all of this is certain, but even mm -hmm. just acknowledging that the pathway is uncertain, that's such an obvious thing that we recognise as clinicians, but we sometimes forget to actually explain that um, to um, people. And so it's not only that the progression may be um, occurring, but it might be there's some uncertainty around how that might happen and people are living with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Building on that, you know, sort of the extension of, of that story, that common story is that palliative care, the service, is often introduced very late in the illness journey. And I know this is something, you know, in Australia, there's been lots of papers of trying to move it upstream in Canada and in the US, we've all been working on the same issue. But do you, is that the common experience there that, you know, they connect to your service often very late in the illness journey? And what has, what has been the approach been in Australia to try to combat that and move it upstream? So I think, you know, you know, we would say that Australia has a really good um, structure to the way palliative care services are, are set up. Um, but it is a bit of a postcode lottery that depending on where you live, how the services historically have um, set up, that your, your access uh, is driven by so many other factors rather than need. And we actually need to, if you went to emergency and you were having a heart attack, you would expect a heart specialist somewhere in the system to be the person driving um, your care. And I think we need to be having systems where if you have a palliative care need, that the community should have an expectation that someone with expertise in that area would have some um, input in providing them some options around their need. And so I think referral-based, um, prognosis-based systems um, really aren't going to serve this group of people well. It needs to be needs-based and that's independent of um, prognosis because you know, sometimes have people have very complex needs at diagnosis and then once you put some plans in place, those things really settle down and other people have more complex needs um, continuously and other people um, have that um, more at the, the end of their illness. And so you can't really predict at what time palliative care might offer you something really useful and you might not need to have that interaction all the time, but um, it really should be when you need it um, and where you need it and as quickly as you need it. We spend so much time here in Canada discussing, um, you know, the nuances between what a palliative care specialist or palliative care specialty team or consult team, um, you know, what role they play in the illness journey, uh, separate or um, in tandem with this idea of palliative care being a philosophy of care. Um, that should be incorporated into the illness journey um, by any doctor or any nurse. You don't have to be a specialist um, to, to provide uh, 
to care through the lens of a palliative approach. Um, do you guys spend a lot of time trying to sort that out in Australia? I think there's a lot of passion about those aspects and I, I think um, fundamentally it does come back to thinking about what are the humanistic qualities of good healthcare, um, that you're working in partnership, um, the person is the centre of their care, um, communication should be core and, you know, the College of Physicians has a professional uh, curricula to really to articulate a good physician should look like X, Y or, or Z. And so there are those core things about um, human to human interaction and professional um, approaches to care that should be core to any discipline, whether you're going just for an X-ray versus someone who has a chronic um, illness. And then I think what you're all talking about, again, is the, the next level of that is you know, what are the, some of the clinical skills and by that I mean the breadth of clinical skills, you know, you know dealing with emotion, um, spiritual needs. I, I would put in the gamut of um, clinical expertise in the field of palliative medicine. Um, and I think there are some core things um, that all clinicians, regardless of discipline or specialty um, or even level of training, um, that a graduate should have some core skills I mean, in being able to respond to emotional needs and spiritual needs. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you mentioned a bunch of different domains of needs that the patient or family might have, uh, symptom needs, uh, spiritual, emotional. Uh, one of the biggest gaps that we're trying to fill for, for this podcast series is informational needs, mm-hmm. uh, that we find that that's probably the biggest gap that contributes to all those other domains, mm-hmm. spiritual distress, um, emotional distress, mm-hmm. physical amplification of their symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so although we have lots of courses on how to teach doctors and nurses how to communicate around serious illness, Um, there is some evidence that they continue to struggle with when to introduce it. Mm -hmm. You can teach it. They can parrot it back to you. um, They can practice it on a standardized um, practice, you know, patient. But when they get back into the clinical world, the real world, it seems to be um, there's so many barriers to actually incorporating that into clinical practice. Any comment about that, Mira? And no, for clinicians who have told me that, you know, they find this conversation really difficult or said, look, you're giving me this toolkit and this acronym and I've got to remember all of this and then I've got to get the courage to even raise it. It's almost I'm going into battle. I'm going in for my bad news discussion now and got to be prepared and they hype themselves up. So, you know, just pair it all back and just ask someone what matters most or what's important for you right now. Mm-hmm. I don't even worry about is it bad news, is it good news, how are they going to respond. Just start turning around your conversations to not what I want to know, how's your pain today, did you take your medicines, what medication you're on, um, have you had fevers or whatever you want to know. Mm-hmm. Just say, mm-hmm. what is, you know, if I was to solve one thing for you today or what's your priority or what matters most? And then the natural flow of conversation and the permission you're giving people, then just respond 
without reacting to your own discomfort, respond to what happens with the conversation. And if everyone started doing that, I think we probably even our patients and families would probably relax as well and start being able to start some of these difficult conversations without it feeling like a battle and got to prepare for it. Because sometimes I think the things that feel bad or bad news come from unexpected quarters and the things we thought were going to be bad actually our information that's the thing that we were craving and the bit we needed to know and so sometimes we put labels on things before we've even had started the conversation and just felt what it feels like and responded to that in the moment. I, I love that um, approach that you're suggesting uh, this idea of you know just be real um, put the algorithms put the uh, the, tool. the tool guides um, <laughs> uh, aside and just be yourself and um, ask questions in the way you would ask your family questions, really. Um, I think that's why people have responded uh, positively to the podcast in a way, because Sienna and I have been very careful about just speaking naturally, you know, in these podcasts. And not putting very strict, um, you know, tools and alg- algorithms and anachronisms. Uh, it's so stressful having to, I mean, tools and all of these things are very, they can be very helpful. But when it comes right down to it, we're all just humans. Mm-hmm. And humans yeah, like right. humans to speak mm-hmm. to them. Think about a problem and... Um... I think practice different ways and learn language that's worked for other people because sometimes we haven't heard uh, a lot of my junior teams they I've never heard someone have these look they want to be the fly on the wall to actually see how it's done and um, we've probably not seen our grandmothers talk about this to their sisters or um because those things happen in remote places um to us now and um, so we haven't been the fly on the ball since we were a child to hear how people do this in different ways and then pick a language that resonates with us so i think the tools are trying to replace that give us some shared language and some examples and some ways to practice um, that we've lost from our own human experience i think partly yeah i agree i mean i think we've also lost the role modeling of how to do this well and how to communicate well and of course you know, there are other barriers. It's interesting because we've talked to both clinicians and patients, and they point to the other side as the main barrier. We've talked to clinicians, and they have said they don't talk about this because they know, because they feel like their patients have sort of signaled mm-hmm. to them that they don't want them to go go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want them to give up hope. And then when we talk to patients and their families, they say, well, we tried to ask and the, and the doctors really shut us down. So I'm, I'm curious if you've ever had this sort of debate. Is it which side is sort of, you know, not open to the conversation? Is it just luck of the draw or is there sort of um, a misunderstanding, like this disconnect of what people are saying? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm more in the disconnect. I think people want to talk about this more. And I, no, I think it's interesting that you're using metaphors because I think people raise it as metaphors and we miss the cue. <laughs> it's right it's right there and we miss the cue. And once that moment or that metaphor becomes back into concrete, the door shuts. Um, and I think that it doesn't happen every conversation and sometimes it takes a few conversations before 
that moment happens, but I think we do miss it um, more often than we like to to believe, and it's because we can't we don't want to sit with that discomfort about where that might take us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the walk to roads was. Mm-hmm. That's why it's our first and it was our most powerful because it is this idea that it, just because we're talking about it is not we're not robbing you of hope. Mm-hmm. You know, hope and preparing can coexist. Mm-hmm. And if you can, I mean, not you, but if patients and families who often are the ones who want to be cheerleading and, and healthcare providers are picking up on that cue too, if they can, I want to say, accept that or uh, come to terms with that, I think then it becomes easier to explore what does preparing mean. And preparing doesn't mean necessarily, you know, I accept death and I'm going that route. It just means that, you know, treatments don't always work. It, we can't treat you forever. Or I need to start to prepare for uh, what if I can't walk up the stairs? What if I can't walk the walk? What if I can't mow the lawn anymore? Who's going to take that for me? Who's going to watch mom and dad when they their memory starts to get weaker? I mean, those are questions that people, I think, feel more comfortable thinking about. I know I've had to think about those in our family. And that's not the same thing as thinking about what does it mean if so-and-so is going to die in the next three months. And also, you know, if there's something really important that I want to do, let's actually make that happen um, and let's mm-hmm. you know, get my healthcare team being part of that um, goal. Um, why have them working to things that are not important um, to you? you know, get them on your side and um, be part of your team for your um, important things in, in life. Because um, you know, I think sometimes we have people working towards goals that are not their goals. It's, I don't know whose goals they are, but um, they're the wrong goals. And I think the sooner we know that and we're all on the same team working towards the same um, aspect of what living well means to that person, then it's going to be better for everyone. And I think people are also scared that if they start the conversation, it's going to be like a flood that the doctor will suddenly say, okay, you've asked the question and now I'm going to sit, sit here and tell you one hour about how doom and gloom everything is. It's actually you've put your toe in the water and they'll put their toe in the water and just give you a little bit of increment. And at any time you can say, okay, that's enough for today or I don't quite like that pathway. I want to steer it now down this pathway. Let's just talk about um, physical function. I don't want to talk about my emotions right now. And so you're steering the ship um, and it's incremental and how big those increments are and how many of them um, in each conversation um, you can um, steer and be part of that decision. And so, um, and I think doctors and nurses are scared of that as well, that the moment they start the conversation, they've got to be prepared um, for all of it and they have to know all the answers. Um, just because someone asks something, you you don't have to know the answer. You can say, let's go and find that out together. Um, very important question. It's obviously going to be something you need to know and information that you don't have. Let's work out together where we can find that information for you. Mira, um, are you able to entertain us with your definition of palliative care in the in the simplest way possible like what is palliative care as far as you're concerned so 
So I think it's about living well in the place that you want to be with the people you want to be um, with uh, for as long as possible. Um, that would be really how I would define palliative care. And so why are people so scared of the word? It's curious, isn't it? Because based on your definition, who wouldn't want it? Correct. So we spend some time also with this tension about do we use the P word or do we not use the P word? Um, Actually, Sienna and I decided to, well, we didn't really decide, but we were aware that if we used the P word too much in our podcast or the marketing of our podcast, um, that people would think it was, um, you know, all about end of life and dying and, you know, all the doom and gloom stuff and that they would never listen to the podcast. So we uh, purposely tried to, you know, talk about a palliative approach and palliative care in the words that you just used. Mm -hmm. Um, Lovely words about person-centeredness and, you know, being the best that you can be along your entire illness journey. Um, And so some people say to us, why do you avoid saying the P word or, you know, you're palliative denying and you are part of the problem because if you don't say the word, then you're contributing to a death denying society. So I don't know, where do you fall in this argument? Do we get rid of the palliative word and just call it the beautiful care that you just defined? Or do we use it and raise the hell about it? No, I think it needs a name and palliative care is as good a name as um, any name. But there's a broad range of conversations around how you might um, get to the point where the the name and um, the discussion about the specifics of it um, might come up. And I think there's many, many routes to that. And I think we need all of these conversations. I think we do need a a public um, health policy discussion that names palliative care and says that this should be front and centre in our healthcare systems and it is a specialty and a discipline that is as important as every other pillar of our healthcare system and needs to be integrated and you've got to give it a name in that context and you need to be speaking to government um, and it needs to be written in our health policy. But when you're talking about human personal conversations relating to a person in front of you with an illness, the language you use should be the language that best helps them understand what it offers for them and how they can access it and um, engages in them. And if the word is palliative care, then well and good. If the words are something else, then well and good. Um, And as clinicians, I think as well, um, using the words that work best for us to achieve that end goal um, also applies. But I think if you give people context, um, I found eventually you can get to to explain and this is what you know, what we've just been talking about, that's what palliative care is. And you get to that as in part of the conversation and um, I've never found the name has suddenly said, well, okay, I'm just going to stop talking with you now. Now you've mentioned that. Oh, is that what we've been talking about? Um, if you've walked people through these sorts of conversations, that never really happens. There's an aha moment. People say, okay, I get it now. It's not what I really thought it was. Um, so I think when we're a lot, sort of a bit beefed up about the word. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a um, single um, 
one word defines it all. You have to have a conversation about it. I remember one time, uh, so I, I flip-flopped about introducing myself as this, that, or the other thing, right? Um, I work in people's homes uh, like you do. And um, I never know if people fully understand who's going to come to see mm-hmm. them that day and why we've been asked to come and who we are. Um, so, you know, I, I do a little bit of feeling out for a bit before I do the big reveal of, you know, what my specialty is. Um, and sometimes I don't need to reveal at all. Um, but there was one time I remember I sat with a patient and family and, you know, an hour goes by, you do this, um, a really beautiful consultation and, uh, everyone's feeling, uh, more informed and connected and, um, they feel that they know, you know, where things are at and where they're going. <laughs> and I remember one woman said to me one time, uh, you know, I'm so happy that you came uh, with the team to do this visit today because you're not going to believe this. They wanted to send a palliative care team here. Can you imagine they wanted to spend? And we laughed and laughed when we ended up telling her, well, guess what? You just had a palliative. (laughs) We are the palliative care team, but they expected some like a uh, team dressed in black with hoods and, you know, <laughs> I don't know what they expected, but they definitely didn't expect to have just a conversation, a real conversation. Yeah. And that's a common experience. I think that what people imagine, you know, I think you know, if other clinicians um, in health struggle to understand um what it is that palliative care does. It's not unsurprising that the broader community also um, struggles. And it is a hard, no, it is actually it's a, such a multi-pronged, um, multi-aspect um, and involves a number of clinical disciplines. It's you know, quite, you know, even something like rehabilitation is hard to explain. And you know, it does take a, a little bit of explaining what all the different elements and how they contribute. And so... It's not something that's very easily encapsulated in a single word, really. Yeah. Do you, do you, oh, do you find a lot of your work, in, in your clinical work, do you feel like uh, in your hospital it's pretty, in, it's well integrated palliative care and, or do you spend some, a lot of your time sort of educating other specialties on how, how best to integrate palliative care upstream? Or do you feel like you've sort of, you're over the hump in Australia with that. And many people understand and um, are using specialists like yourself at the right time, but are able to do some of the basics or some of the, the, you know, the, the ABCs of palliative care on their own. I think we've seen a real improvement over the last decade. And um, it was national palliative care week in Australia just a week ago. And um we do a community survey every year just to just to see how that's changing over time. And very pleasingly, 90% of um, the respondents knew, um, felt that they knew what palliative care was and at least three quarters felt that they would want that for themselves and their family. But when it came to the depth of what that actually was, that was where their understanding fell down. And so I think we're making some inroads in terms of people saying, yeah, I think this is a good thing. <laughs> I think I would want that. Um, but then if you ask me about the detail, um, 
sort of think it's this, but I don't know the full breadth and depth. And so I think that's we're moving to the the depth and breadth conversation. I think that's why your podcast is really resonating with people because they they're starting to think um, we have to think about health in a different way. We have to look at look mm-hmm. after older people in a different way. Um, we're disconnected from ourselves when we're ill um, as a community. How do we regain that? But um, they want the detail and the, the depth about those aspects. Mm-hmm. Speaking of integration, uh, how um, how are family teams, our informal caregivers, uh, integrated into the care uh, in in Australia? It, does it depend on the care setting? Do you think that's going well? We have some problems here in Canada, Mira. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> We're not doing a great job with caregivers. Yeah, I, I think it's variable. I think in some settings um, there is a better understanding. Um, but this idea that someone is not a solo, um, doesn't come to healthcare as a solo individual in the most part, um, but also, I think not to make the assumption about who they who they recognise as their circle of care or important others should be the the people that they nominate, and it's sometimes not necessarily the the most obvious um, next of kin or blood relative um, that their circle of um, caregivers who they want to be part of their um, care planning may differ to who we think those people. Um, are um, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around um, substitute decision makers and who you know what the law actually says and who those people are and the processes by which um, you can have conversations about who might speak on your behalf um, if you were able to speak for yourself I think the um, the understanding around that and that's so critical I think if people were not wanting to prepare about anything else, just knowing who that person was and helping them feel prepared to understand your own preferences and values. If you only did that, um, you would be really um, setting up the plans for your um, future care if you weren't able um, to make Mm. it yourself in in a way that would be most congruent with your own wishes, I think. Mm. It's a good point, Mira. I mean, caregivers are critical to the legal roles they play as substitute decision makers and how they can represent the patient's values if they aren't able to speak for themselves. But also, and I know you see this, they obviously have a critical and vital role in the health of the patient. And yet, as a system, they are often ignored and overlooked, or at least that is what so many of our patient and caregiver advocates tell us. I think it's important for people to realise that it's okay to have other people as key to your support when you have a chronic illness. And if you have um, lived next to the same person for 30, 40 years um, and they're core to your um, uh, support structure, it's okay to go to your health professionals and say, I want this person to be part of these conversations um, and actually, um, this person's more important than these other people. Um, and sometimes I think we think we have to bring a particular group of people because they're the expected um, people. Um, 
But if there's someone critical um, to you and the way you're going to be able to face um, your illness, um, speak up and say, this person should be a part of my team. Um, and yeah. I think I tell junior people that sometimes people get their supports from the unexpected quarters and when they say that, don't be surprised. Ask a bit more and find out a bit more about it and then you'll know what, where that person, what part they play. Um, and sometimes... It's okay to say to someone's spouse, um, you know, if being involved in medical decisions is not, not your skill set or not something you feel is your part to play in this team, <laughs> um, that's okay as well. You can, you can um, denounce um, your role mm -hmm. that someone else has um, given um, for you and say, no, my role is going to be this because that's what I feel I'm, that, that, that's what I feel I can do and I have skills to do and feel comfortable doing. That person is really the medical decision maker, and they're good at it, and they want to do it. And my mum wants them to do it, so let's just all agree on those roles and not put roles on people um, that they don't want to have. Can I can I shift gears a little bit? Because because I'm really excited to have a researcher on our call, and as and as I you know I'm a, a healthcare researcher, health services researcher, and I'd love to talk a little bit or give you the chance, Mira, to talk a little bit about some of your research projects, um, you know, maybe, you know, some that you're most excited about and how you, and, and why you're, why you're passionate about that. So I think um, my area of research is really around um, cognition and mental awareness. And it's you know, a lot about what we've been talking about, that um, being human and connection requires cognition and communication. And um, it's a, an aspect of, what happens to people's bodies um, as they have a chronic um, illness and they have um, acute illnesses in between that, that we know um, surprisingly very little um, about both the, the biological mechanisms but also the best way to optimise um, people's um, thinking, memory and communication um, when they're experiencing a serious um, illness. And it crosses... Um, a range of chronic illnesses that happens to people in the intensive care unit, happens to children who are seriously ill. So it's um, not an area of research that by any means is only limited um, to palliative care, but I think it's a, such an important part of the human experience and um, such a, an important part of in, in care that we need to actually get better strategies um, to both prevent and also um, manage um, that aspect um, of people's physical function that I think um, it's an exciting part of um, research because I think um, what I found is doing research, you know, what I found as a researcher that actually doing research is about having conversations and um, giving voice to people's experience um, and cr creating data that means something to other um, clinicians or policy makers but actually Fundamentally, you're doing the same. You're giving a voice to people's experience. And that's the part of research, you know, speaking to people who've had cognitive issues. Um, I'm particularly interested in acute changes um, in people's thinking and, and memory. Um, to, to allow them to tell me about how they've experienced that, how it impacted their families and the things that they had hoped could have been managed better um, and giving a voice to that is very powerful. 
can I have a follow up? Okay, so the so I I know you've uh, you know you you practice in Australia. You're you've traveled around the world to you know at giving conferences and presenting your research. What what have you learned? I guess or um, what have you noticed having traveled and seen many different systems and talked to different researchers? That I would I guess that you would say that you're proud of Australia. That you guys think that you maybe it's not about doing better, but that you feel like this is something that you guys have figured out. Is there a certain things that you feel that is different about Australia that you think, you know, could be a model or something that others could learn from like Canada? I mean, I think we have a couple of fortunate things. One is we have a, um, a public health model of um, health service funding. And so, um, integrated care that is publicly available um, and funded um, you know, is core to the Australian healthcare system and I think that you know, palliative care then fits within that and I think that's um, one aspect that we're very um, fortunate and I think we have to be very careful we don't lose. Um, and the other I think is that we had um, the National Palliative Care Strategy um, put in place and so that we actually do have a document that describes what the strategy for the country um, is another thing to have it implemented but I think to actually have a strategy document to say both we need a strategy and this is what our strategy is at a national level um, is important. I think having both of those two things um, has given us a platform to accelerate um, some of these in initiatives that's not at all um, completely all solved, but I think those um, two things, having a national strategy, um, you know, having universal healthcare coverage of some description um, does um, give some platforms in which the, the access and quality access to palliative care um, can occur. And I think the other thing is the recognition of um, palliative medicine as a specialty. I think that was probably another landmark um, time point in the uh, Australian um, system um, that has helped progress um, the field and helped other disciplines then have that conversation within their respective um, disciplines in terms of postgraduate study in the field. Mira, final question. What advice do you have for patients and families to have a better illness experience? No, I think think about the questions you want to ask um, and if a question comes up, write them down. I tell my patients, write them down, um, bring them in. Um, even if you're not sure when to ask them, even just show me the list um, and then maybe I might help you navigate which one we could answer today. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't get the answer the first time, um, don't think you've asked the wrong question. Just ask it again and, and just realise that you know, there's discomfort all around and... Um, it's a really important question, just ask it again. Um, mm -hmm. And no, I think um, you know, asking you know, what palliative care might have to offer you, um, just be, be upfront and um, actually ask that question. You say you've heard about palliative care and you think it might be something that could offer you something and you want to know more about it and um, just broach the conversation. And I think sometimes clinicians will be, and I think they'll be surprised that um, more often than not, clinicians are relieved that someone's raised some of these um, issues and someone has to um, sort of pop the bubble and make a start. Mm -hmm. 
um, and then the conversation would flow naturally. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mira, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is made whole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.